This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the US and Canada. Welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. Today, I am honestly just blown away to get to speak with New York Times and international bestseller, Ruta Sepetis, about her newest book. Winner of the Carnegie Medal, you might know Ruta from her other books, including Between Shades of Grey, Salt to the Sea, and The Fountains of Silence. Her latest novel, I Must Betray You, tells the story of 17-year-old Christian, who is living with his family in the communist dictatorship of Romania in December of 1989. A story largely untold until now, Ruta puts us into Christian's home and mind as he struggles to find the truth in a world where everyone might be a government informant. This fast-paced, excellently researched piece has taught me a great deal, and I am extremely honored to have Ruta here and to get to ask her all about it. So, let's get started. Hey, Ruta. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Hi, Chelsea. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Of course. And speaking of introductions, I'd love to start with you just telling our listeners a bit more about yourself and about this latest book, I Must Betray You. Sure. I'm Ruta Sepetis. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, but I'm originally from Michigan. I'm an author of historical fiction, and I look for those underrepresented stories, those pieces of history that might have slipped through the cracks. So I'm looking to shine light into the darker corners of history. I mean, from the M.V. Wilhelm Gustav maritime disaster to Franco's dictatorship in Spain, and now with this book, as we said, The Romanian Revolution, your historical fiction tells the stories of people in these moments that I think especially our Western education have largely either ignored or forgotten about. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about what draws you to these kinds of stories. Well, writing historical fiction sort of drew me to myself. What does that mean? That I have a theory that people who feel underrepresented or people whose stories and histories aren't well known, that sometimes they feel misunderstood. They feel like the world has forgotten them. Growing up, you know, as a Lithuanian American kid, Where I lived, I didn't know other Lithuanians, and as a result, I felt pretty misunderstood. And it just occurs to me, let's take that to a much broader scale, to countries and entire cultures that we really don't know things about. And it's not that we've forgotten them. We truly just don't know their story. And so I think we can remedy that 
by, you know, writing books and sharing stories gives us the opportunity to use some of the most powerful gifts that we have, compassion and understanding. So I think that it facilitates human understanding. No, that's a fantastic answer. And I definitely hadn't thought about it that way, but I love that. I am wondering, because this book centers around the Romanian Revolution, and I think in your historical notes at the end of the book, you said that there was a poll taken where, like, a pretty high majority of the people in the poll didn't know Romania and Transylvania were real places. They thought they were made up. And I don't think I was that bad before I read your book, but I really don't think I had a really good idea of the Iron Curtain in general. I've done a little bit more reading now since I read your book because I just got really interested in it. But I was wondering for you, was the Romanian Revolution and the fall of the Iron Curtain something that you were aware of as it was happening? And if not, how did you learn the story? And are there particular elements that as you're looking at moments in history, and, and specifically with this one, that you look for and say like, oh, that would make a good historical novel? Or was there something about the Romanian Revolution that you were like, that's going to be my next book, that would make a really good story? I was definitely aware of the countries that were suffering under the Iron Curtain. My father fled from Lithuania, spent nine years in refugee camps before he made it to the United States. So as a first-generation American, yes, I absolutely grew up with that knowledge, and that inspired you know, my first book, Between Shades of Grey. And then in 1989, during the fall of communism, I saw what many other adults saw. You saw these television moments. You saw, you know, the Berlin Wall falling. And so, yes, I was aware of it, but from a distance. And it wasn't until I went to Romania on tour, actually for Between Shades of Grey, and I was sitting in like an outdoor cafe my interpreter was there and I think a publicist and one of the women picked up an ashtray on the table and looked underneath it and she saw me looking at her and she said, oh, I'm sorry, habit. They were always listening, you know. And I said, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, there used to be listening devices in the ashtrays. I said, who was listening? She said, the blue eyed boys. And the story just kept getting, I thought, what in the world? And she explained that in Romania during the 80s, under the dictatorship of this maniacal leader, Ceausescu, that they were beneath this veil of enforced mass surveillance. And the stories just kept coming and coming. And again, I thought that as the daughter of a victim of communism, that I understood the Iron Curtain, various forms of communism, and I learned, oh my goodness, how little I knew. My bald ignorance began to show, and I was fascinated. And that's what really inspired me to tell the story of this dark world of enforced obedience that sounds dystopian, but it's not. It's real. <laughs> and that was something I was really curious about, too, because as I was reading your book, I had these moments where I, like, had to remind myself that this wasn't a dystopian novel. This is a story about something that actually happened in the very recent past. Like 1989 was really not that long ago. And you really infused the book with this palpable feeling of paranoia. Reading the book, I didn't know what was happening until the very last page. And even then, I'm like still not sure I totally understood or knew all the truths that were going on. I was wondering, as you were writing it, especially as you're writing a book more focused towards YA, if you had that in your head, that you were writing this book sort of as this dystopian, but also a story about the past, how you walked that line as you were writing. Well, first of all, thank you so much for saying that the entire time you were reading, you weren't quite sure what was going on. 
that was the unfortunate truth of the Romanian people. They didn't know who they could trust. One in every 10 people was recruited as an informer. Husbands were informing on wives, you know, spouses on each other, brothers and sisters. So I wanted you to have that feeling of, wait, what is the truth here? And yes, as I was writing the book, my work really sits on the shoulders of research and all the work that came before me, all the true witnesses who experienced the time period that I'm writing about. And as I was doing my research, as I said, this dark world, this ashen landscape, so barren, became to emerge. And I was desperate to kind of capture that and also wanted to convey to the reader what it might feel like to live in a world of mistrust, where in the end, you're not sure if someone is betraying you or if you are betraying yourself. And I love that, too, because you were telling the story of this time in history, and it's got all these broader historical moments in this broader historical context. But you're also telling like this really human story about this 17 year old kid who is trying to live a life. He's trying to figure out how he could possibly live a life in this world that just feels so difficult and so impossible to do or trust anyone or anything. I was wondering, because you obviously tell historical fiction, as you're writing these characters, as you're writing Christian, this first person point of view through his eyes and through his head, the writing of that person, does it ever change how you view the history or change how you view the research or give you further insight into what you've learned from research and history? It absolutely does. And that's one of the first steps when I begin a project. What's the point of view here? My last novel, The Fountains of Silence, which was set in Spain, I wrote it as third person, as an outsider looking in. But for this, one of the most important steps in my research, and not even in research, but just in the crafting of a story, is to sit down with the true witnesses and listen to their testimony. And as they were sharing their story, their fear, revisiting those traumatic periods, it was palpable. They were breathless and I was breathless as I was listening to them. And I thought, what if I could create an experience for the reader that's almost like helmet camera, you know, like GoPro, that's first person, where the reader, they're in Christian's mind, in his heart. They don't know who's over his shoulder. And yes, that really does dictate so much of how I'm gonna build the story the conflict layers that I'm going to inject into the plot and things like that. No, I will say you did that so incredibly well. I think that's always the best part of reading maybe like a dystopian novel or a thriller is that you don't have the pieces. And with this, what was so interesting is, yeah, you could Wikipedia or Google the Romanian Revolution and find out how it ended, which I didn't do until I finished the book. And then I went back and read a bit more about it. But you can't know the specifics of him. You don't know what decisions he's going to make, and you don't know what decisions the people around him are making. You literally have no idea. You don't even know if you can trust him. You don't know if you can trust the people that he loves the most. It's wild, and as we talk about this, I feel like I need to remind the listener, this is a true story. It's historical fiction, so the moment surrounding this story is true. This is not a dystopian novel we are talking about. This is about the Romanian Revolution and how these people were truly living in the late 80s. This was not hundreds of years ago. This was like third, 40 years ago, not even. And you captured that all so well. 
I want to talk a little bit more about your research process because I'm really, really interested in this and the fact that you choose to write historical fiction. I'm very curious to know, does it add an extra layer of challenge for you? Because you're doing all this research into what really happened, but then you also need to invent character and personal story to go on top of that. Or does it provide you maybe with like a little more freedom because you get to decide a lot of these like smaller details yourself? It's definitely a challenge. I would say way more challenge than freedom. But that really, I think, Chelsea, is kind of self-imposed because I am so concerned with accuracy and authenticity on the one hand, right? But if I just do a huge info dump, it's going to be boring. So the challenge is make it human because we remember feelings so much longer, I think, than we remember facts. We remember those feelings. And so I want the readers, you know, to absorb those feelings. And in this case, I wanted to make it something really relatable. So we've got a 17-year-old kid in high school. The school director says, hey, your dad's in the office. He knows something is up. His dad never comes to school. And he goes, and it's the Romanian secret police. And they blackmail him to become a spy. What would we do? And that's what I'm constantly asking the reader. So I'm trying to keep it human, but then put these questions in the reader's mind. You know, how would I react? How would I survive? And so it's definitely a challenge. My freedom, because I stick very closely to the historical anatomy of it, even down to the weather. If I go back, like I looked at the weather reports hour by hour, because if it was going to rain or snow or it had to be accurate, because if someone who is of Romanian heritage is reading this, I have to honor that experience. It's so important. But my creativity comes in. This is the fiction in historical fiction. You know, after I interview 100 people, I pull threads from, let's say, 20 people and I weave them together. I braid them together into a composite character. And I think this is an advantage I have in writing fiction, because if I were writing nonfiction, maybe I would be limited to describing the experience of one person, of one family. But this way, I feel like I'm representing a larger human experience. And it's so rewarding and validating when someone who is of this background will say, this is my story. But really, it's 25 people who are brought together. And so that's my freedom. That's my liberty. And of course, some of the dialogue. So I write all of my dialogue first. Early versions of my books look like a screenplay. And then I go back in and I fill everything in. Dialogue is the easiest for me. Oh, that's so interesting, because your book really did feel very cinematic in a way. There are those books you read where you feel like you're watching a movie as you read a book, and yours definitely felt that way. I love the pacing of your story, too, the shorter chapters that give you the truth of each moment, kind of like scenes. I really enjoyed that. I am curious, you were saying that you stick to things really specifically. Has there ever been moments where you are doing research and you either learn something new that then has to change a plot point, Or are there ever moments where you decide to keep something even if it doesn't line up exactly? I was hoping you talk a little bit more about how you walk that line that I would imagine is like the biggest challenge for a historical fiction author of when to stick as true as humanly possible and when to take fictional and creative liberty. Yes, but I have to preface this by letting you and your audience know that I'm nuts when it comes to this. And my other friends who write historical fiction, they're like, you do what? You go to what? Like, You do not need to go to these lengths. 
this is a personal thing that I don't know. It's I'm a crossover author, so my books are read not only by young adults, but by adults, by senior citizens. And it's always in the back of my mind that, you know, the readers of historical fiction, sometimes they're historians, you know, and they're going to take me to the mat on this. So yes, as I'm writing the book, all of a sudden, I'll stumble upon a piece of research that completely ruins something I've already written. And yes, I have to go back and I have to change it. And then there are, um, one of the magic things about historical fiction is that, and again, I think it's magic. Other authors say it's annoying, but when the book is released, readers who experience what you've written about, they send you feedback. And my publisher, Penguin Young Readers Group, is amazing. They go back in subsequent printings and we make very tiny changes. Like in my first edition of Between Shades of Grey, I use the word genocide. The book is set in 41. An academic emailed me and said, no, that word wasn't used until 43. And so we changed it. So if you have first editions of any of my books, not to say they're valuable or anything, but they're different. <laughs> that's so interesting. And I like what you said, too, that you're not saying that that's a rule that every historical fiction author needs to follow. It's just the one that for your work and for what you're doing, you prefer. I would imagine some of that probably comes from the fact that you're telling a lot of stories that have happened recently. Like your stories are not hundreds of years old. Your stories are really recent history that a lot of your readers have either experienced or have like maybe parents or grandparents who have experienced. And that makes it more important. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about feedback that you've gotten from readers and have you gotten any back yet from Romanian readers for this story? I know it's not available to the general population yet, but if you have heard from anybody who experienced this themselves and what maybe their feedback was. Yes, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. And first, you know, thank you for mentioning that I do write historical fiction, but I write about time period, you know, World War II, Fountains of Silence was post-Spanish Civil War. This is in the 80s. And people sometimes ask, would you ever write something written in the 1700s or the 1800s? And of course, I'd love to. But right now, I feel an urgency to share these stories while we still have access to the survivors or to the family members of victims, to these true witnesses because what's important is to give them a voice and I can work with them as I'm building these stories. And I do for salt to the sea. I travel to six different countries doing research and meeting with families and survivors. So yeah, that's one of the reasons I do focus on this. Oh yes. And feedback. Yes. Feedback to me is so important. And again, I write the books, but they are not my stories history writes my stories and they belong to the people who experience them. So I don't need to be right. I need to listen. I do a lot of listening and feedback has really taught me that historical fiction could possibly be one of the most powerful genres because think about it. History divided us, but oftentimes people from families who stood on opposite sides during the war or who came from families who had different viewpoints, we read the same book and oftentimes through classrooms or book clubs or gatherings, library events, we come together. So history divided us, but through reading, we're united in story and study and remembrance. And sometimes that feedback when I get together at events, you know, understandably, it's not always positive. There was a Lithuanian woman who came to one of my events for Between Shades of Grey, and she also had experienced 
something similar to what I wrote about in Between Shades of Grey, but in a different part of Siberia. She was sent to a different part. And she didn't like the book for certain reasons that were very valid. But she came and she was pretty fired up and ready to talk about it. But at the end of our conversation with the audience, she said, you know what? I still don't know if I like your book, but I think I might like you. And that was so powerful to me because oftentimes, you know, we take these positions and we're sort of nameless and faceless to one another. And again, through reading and through these discussions, we can share and she can tell me this is why I don't like this. And I can tell her, I hear you. I hear you. And you know what? You're right. And that's valid. And so maybe we don't like the same book, but we like each other. I think that's really powerful. That's an incredible story. And I think the fact that you're so open to feedback and that you do go back and even change little details if they're not right, just promotes that so much more of wanting these to be books that share these people's stories and that get these stories out there. Yeah, and you asked about Romanian feedback. Well, so imagine I worked with, I can't build these novels without research partners and true witnesses. And so, so many Romanians helped me with this book. And of course, very nerve wracking when you send them the draft, of course, to read the early draft. And fortunately, they were all so positive and said, oh my goodness, you know, they felt it was immersive. And to some, quite frankly, painful, because that is opening old wounds. It's revisiting a time period and experience of collective trauma. And they were so generous. You know, they were so very generous about it. It's too early. Not many people have advanced copies, so not many people have read it. But I'm really looking forward to that feedback and discussing it and learning myself, you know, how I can learn and grow and become a better writer and hopefully a better human. (laughs) I think immersive is exactly the right word. I read this book in not even a day. Like you can't put it down. And I think part of that is the pacing and the mystery elements of it. And also part of that is just you've really put us in this world. You want to know if Christian and his family are going to be okay. You want to know what's going to happen to this country, to this society that you really care about. And I mean, your heart breaks for them like every five minutes, it feels like. And what you've done a really good job here is I know for me, it really encouraged me to look into more information about this and to learn more about something that I really just was completely unaware of until I read your book. Because I think what's interesting is in some ways this recent from the 80s Iron Curtain history, for some reason, it's just like you get through World War II in, in world history class and then it kind of ends and you miss a big chunk of this. And I think... What's really great about this book is I think it'll introduce to a lot of maybe younger readers what the situation was and where these countries are coming from and the the history that they have. You were saying your books are crossover books. They're written for young adults, but they are also read a lot by adults and older adults and everybody all across the board. But you really do write the stories of young people for young people, which I think is a really powerful tool. I'm wondering if you see your books as both a chance to educate, like I was saying, younger people who don't know or hadn't experienced or don't even have like a historical reference for these time periods, as well as maybe encouraging them to stand up and fight for their own struggles. Because, I mean, I'm not living in the 80s in Romania, but we all have things or injustices that we see or difficult moments where we have to make a choice between what's comfortable and what's right. I think your book can also be really provocative for that. I'm sure you don't set out with like a specific message, but if you see your book as an opportunity to do both of those things. 
I don't set out with a specific message because then I feel that I might, you know, be pushing my own opinion. So I try to be objective about the entire thing. But yes, I absolutely focus on the experience of a young person. Why? Because so much of what we're going through in our adult life is a result of what we experienced when we were young. And in these situations of armed conflict, of war, of loss, it's been proven that the highest tolls are paid by the youngest. And yet here are the young people who are so pure of heart and so pure of soul and have such a sense of emotional truth. And to your point then, what a great creative partnership a young reader is for this piece of history. Young readers have such a sense of justice. They understand disparity. They understand injustice and they become crusaders against it. So how great for young readers to move forward, understanding that studying the past gives context to the present and how to change things and make the world a better, more loving, compassionate place, perhaps. So, yeah, it's always the young readers in mind. And it's interesting because in some countries where I'm published, they publish me only as an adult author. For example, in Italy, I'm an adult romance author, if you can believe it. I know it sounds so funny, but in every country, and that's okay. Everyone has a different interpretation of my writing. But when people assume that I really am writing for adults or I want to write for adults, I have to stop them and say, no, I am so honored to write for the most important audience, you know, young adult readers. And that's maybe adults, but who are reading young adult literature and writing young adult literature. That's so interesting because I'm trying to imagine if I picked your book up thinking it was a romance novel, I'd be like wildly confused by the situation. All of my books do have a thread of romance because I learned early on when I started doing these very difficult interviews with people who really were just opening their hearts, no matter how difficult the experience was, of war, of loss, of terror, of enduring a lottery of life or death. I learned through all of them, you know, they still have the capacity to fall in love and love in general. And that was like a universal theme and that amazed me. And so, yeah, you'll always have a little thread. And I'm a romantic sap. I love romance novels. No, I do too. And I love that that was a component of your story too, that there is a romance plotline for sure. And then just also, you forget when you see the video or the Times magazine cover, whatever it might be, you forget that these are like real people who are living an actual life and are going to have crushes and need to figure out how to keep the lights on and fix their radio or whatever it might be. I was really curious to know, do you get different feedback for your books from young adults versus your maybe older readers? And do you think that's a historical context difference or something like that? I was just curious how the feedback differs between the age groups. I do, and I find that young adult readers are a bit more, I don't want to say honest, but let's say a bit more straightforward with their feedback. A young adult reader, they will tell you exactly what they like and what they don't like, and I find that so valuable. The other thing I do find, though, is the interpretation and reaction to very difficult circumstances. Young people, especially let's say middle school readers, they seem to really empathize and understand and appreciate, let's say, stories of the Holocaust, where adults 
feel, oh my goodness, some say I just can't do another historical fiction about this. It's so painful for me. It's So the capacities are different in a young adult reader, I find. Even in middle school, middle schoolers, they want to know in a chapter, well, this person dies, but you didn't say exactly how they die. I want all the details. A middle schooler, a high schooler says, oh, I know exactly what happened and I do not want those details. And an adult says, why do people have to die? This is it's difficult enough. So these capacities are different. And I find it so interesting because there was a school actually in Massachusetts who did a joint read between their high school students and middle school students and an assisted living facility. So we had readers who had lived through World War II discussing the book with 13 to 15-year-olds. The conversations were so illuminating for both. It was such a rich experience with those generational interpretations. It was really fascinating. And I think that's, like I was saying, I think that's what's really great about this book specifically, too, is the opportunity to have conversations about a moment in history or about a time or an experience that we don't generally think a whole lot about or that we don't talk as much about or we don't have the conversations about and why it's important to continue to remember these stories and why it's important to remember that these are moments in history that happened. This is not speculative. This is not, I keep saying it's not dystopian. These were really real situations people were in. And I think it's really important that we all remember that and that students and young adults have the opportunity to learn this information. And 23 million Romanians lived under that regime. Of course, each experience was different, but there were absolutely common threads that people experienced. But when you're reading about this, you are then learning about the experience of 23 million people. That's the power of books, I think. Absolutely. And that story you told about picking up the ashtray, I knew it was a true story. I knew it was a historical fiction book. I knew it was real, but I was like, that's just so visceral to imagine that that's the world you're living in, where you have to check under ashtrays for listening devices. And there are listening devices in your window frames, in your telephones, in your light fixtures, in some cases, even video cameras. In hotels, when you would check into a hotel, there would be cameras. There's a fantastic Romanian writer who wrote a book called My Life as a Spy, Catherine Verdery, and she actually somehow got a hold of photos that were taken of her in the hotel room. And she put one of them on the cover of the book. And you see this, and you th this is not fiction, as we're talking about. It sounds dystopian in a world where you're hunted and haunted, constantly looking over your shoulder. But this was the life that they lived. And when you contrast that to, let's say, people now who were alive in 1989, what were we doing in 1989? And when you think of that time period in the United States, for example, oh my goodness, like what a contrast. In your book too, there are the generational characters as well. I thought it was really interesting because I think in stories like this, you might expect the younger people to be very pro-revolutionary, whereas the older people might be more like things are the way they are, like this is what it is. But I loved in the story, you had the grandfather who was the biggest revolutionary of them all, that he was like, no, this is wrong. This is not how it should be. I thought that was such a great added element to the story, too, that even the generations weren't exactly necessarily what you'd expect from them. Thank you, because the grandfather character was one of my favorite to write. Think about it. That generation, he had experience, and he said, we had more food during World War II because he was around. He could give all this context. And I think in general, our elderly population in general worldwide 
they are just lamplighters and pillars of, of wisdom and experience. And I, for this book, was actually also able to interview one of my own childhood heroes, Nadia Comaneci, who your adult listeners will remember. She was an Olympic star. And I myself, being Lithuanian, seeing her walking through the opening ceremonies of the Olympics with the word Romania across her back, I remember thinking, Chelsea, oh, Romania, they still get, you know, many Soviet countries were just taken off the map when they were Soviet occupied. Um, those satellite countries, Romania, they got to wear the name of their country across their back. And I remember thinking, oh, Romanians, oh, it must be so wonderful there. How little I knew. What I saw of this heroine of Nadia Comaneci, I had no idea what she was experiencing behind the scenes. Yeah, and you include a bit about her in this book, too. And I think that's what's so great about your writing is I don't know those. Like, I didn't know that story. I don't have the lived historical context for that. But reading your book, I was able to understand it. And now I can actually understand the story that you're telling as well. And I think that's really the gift you're giving to younger readers. I would love to know, do you have any desire to ever write fiction, like true, completely fictional fiction? Or do you think keeping it to a historical context and historical fiction is still where you see yourself going? One of the many benefits, I think, of historical fiction is that the genre is so elastic that I really can do what I want. I could write a historical romance. I could write a historical fantasy. I'm not saying I could because writing fantasy is so difficult, but I could write a historical thriller. I could write. So I'm really so intent on shining light in the darker corners of history that for now, in terms of my fiction work, I will, yeah, I think I'll stay with historical fiction. My next book that's coming out though is nonfiction and it's a book on creative writing. I believe that every human being has a story to tell. It's often the people who think that their personal story isn't interesting that are the, it's the most interesting. So I've written a book about using memory to craft story, using your own memories for character development, using your own memories to create a richer and a deeper setting. So I'm writing nonfiction in addition to historical fiction. That's so cool. And maybe what I should have said is contemporary fiction rather than historical fiction. I would love to write contemporary fiction. I've written a contemporary screenplay that I really enjoyed. I have a screenwriting partner that I work with, and I've written a contemporary screenplay. Yes, I would love to. I think that would be super fun. I don't know if I would be any good at it because I also become so obsessed with the details and the research. I might really be terrible at it, but I'd like to try. No, that makes sense. You're like, I got to know if Tuesday, January, whatever in 2021 was snowy or cold or what was going on. Yes. It's important to have that information. I like it. I don't um, know. Is it really? Or I mean, that's what we laugh when I get together with other authors. And often many times they tell me that they expect that I'm going to be, you know, very serious. And oh my gosh, no, I love to laugh, especially at myself. And so it's interesting that when you I guess, write a certain type of literature and create a certain catalog of work, how that represents you. And, you know, sometimes the preconceptions. I don't know if I would be invited, let's say, to take part in a panel with authors who write 
contemporary fiction. Even if we had a thread, like let's talk about romance. I don't know if I would be invited. I tend to be, you know, <laughs> pushed more to the adult academic side. It makes me sad. <laughs> No, that that makes sense. I always go into interviews where I'm like, I wonder what this person's going to be like. And I will say with YA authors, no one has ever not been just super excited and super nice and super happy to talk about their book. So I don't know why every interview I'm like, oh, maybe this is the one where they're going to be like really serious. No, everyone's always so nice. So I'm always blown away by my own expectations. But no, I could see where that would be hard where like you do write these books about these very dark and difficult moments of history where people are like, she must be very serious. And then you're like, no. Exactly. I'm super curious and I am super studious and I love to read and research and research, you know, minutia and things like that. But no, but, and also interesting for some of your listeners, especially those who are writers, I had a very strange path to becoming a writer. My degree is in international finance. So I did not have an English degree or an MFA. I spent 22 years in the music business helping songwriters create stories through song and musicians and bands. And I say that because we take many roads to get to a destination. And maybe, you know, there are some of those in your audience who are saying, wow, I, well, I don't have a degree in writing and could I still become a writer? And I want to assure you, absolutely, you can. Now, would I love to go back and get an MFA? You bet I would. <laughs> Just the chance to do more research, really. <laughs> exactly. Oh, you already know me. You've already got my number. Yeah. No, I feel that. I have friends who are like that, where I'm like, oh, you just really like sitting in the library, huh? I mean, I always love to hear stories like that, because I think it is so important, especially to a YA audience. No author has the same story. No two authors sound exactly alike and how they got wherever they are. And, and also, I love that you found this niche for yourself. You really love the work that you're doing. And, and even if it is maybe more serious than your personality would suggest, that you really appreciate the work that you get to do. I think that's, that's just fantastic. And yeah, my last question, which you've kind of answered, but I'd love to hear maybe just a little bit more. I know it might be too early for any other projects besides the nonfiction one you've got coming out soon, but could you give us any hints as to where your research is maybe leading you towards next? Yes, actually, it's a big secret that I'm hoping is going to be announced in the coming maybe month or two. But for the first time, I've been collaborating with another author on a book, and I am so excited about this book. And I'll just say that it takes place in the UK. That's what I'll say. It takes place in the UK, and this has been such a thrill for me, and I never realized how much fun it could be. To, I mean, through the music business, I absolutely discovered the power of collaboration and working with songwriters and your co-writing. And um, I love to collaborate anyway. And through writing with my screenwriting partner, I, I learned that. But this has just been such a blast because the author I'm writing with, we have very different strengths and weaknesses. And half the time we just end up laughing like, what? You know, we're just very different and that's super exciting. And I can't wait for the announcement, which I think should be coming in the next 30 days or something. So maybe by the time I must betray you, it's out. The announcement about my collaboration will be out.
fantastic. I'm going to be watching the book news for that one for sure. I'm very excited to hear it. I love reading books with authors collaborating because I feel like there's so much exciting stuff to see how the two styles come together. That sounds so cool. And especially that announcement coming out Well, you also have a nonfiction book about creative writing coming out. What a cool combination of things all happening around the same time. Well, I'm going to wrap things up, but thank you so much for being here. This was so much fun. I feel like we could keep talking and I'm looking at the clock and I'm like, oh, we should probably start wrapping things up. But just to finish up, where is the best place for our listeners to learn more about you and about your books? I am in all of the usual places. I am at Ruta Sapetis on Twitter and on Facebook, at Ruta Sapetis author on Instagram. Of course, my website, which is just my name, Ruta Sapetis, but for listeners who don't know how to spell it, understandably, they can go to historyishiding.com, and that's sort of my main website. Perfect. I love that name, too. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Ruta. This was seriously so incredible to get to speak with you and so much fun. Thank you so much. Oh, I have to thank you because I doubt that readers would go running and saying, wait, I need a book about the Romanian Revolution. So, you know, you and your listeners are giving a great gift to me and those who experience this part of history. And I'm grateful, not because I wrote the book, but because of those who might not have had a chance to tell their story. So thank you so much. Absolutely. And if it hasn't been clear until now, I would highly, highly, highly recommend this book. Seriously, go pick it up. I Must Betray You. It is absolutely incredible. You will love it. You will not be able to put it down. Thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at BookmarkedYA. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Bookmark. I hope you all enjoyed this show, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.